I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part five in the series, Practicing the Way, Naming Your Stage of Apprenticeship. Is there a kind of freedom in letting go? Not in giving up, rolling over, playing dead, but in allowing that which is truly beyond our control to slip through our unworried fingers. Is this kind of freedom reserved for the eccentric, the monk, the insane? Or is this where Jesus is leading us all to the freedom of love and letting go? Go ahead and open to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. <clears throat> On more than one occasion, if you've been around here more than once, I've confessed that me personally, were I not a disciple of Jesus... The only other plausible worldview, to my estimation, would be nihilism. I would accept the awful refrain of Ecclesiastes, uh, where the teacher says, meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. The conclusion to everything is the senseless void of death, and we are all helpless against its gravitational pull. But I am not a nihilist. Everything, everything is infused with such extravagant, heartbreaking meaning that life itself can scarcely bear the load of its significance. I believe this in my mind, and I believe this deep down in the most intimate faculties of my very soul. I believe that what Jesus of Nazareth said was true. God himself is my Father, and all of this matters. But the siren song of nihilism, in my brokenness, would like to romance my flesh, meaning that part of me that's bent out of shape, bent away from the truth. And there are a number of reasons for this. I know them well. Some of them have to do with my wiring, personality, others my personal propensity to certain types of sin. But one reason, I believe, is a fractured uh, perception of something that's actually designed by God. What I want is a true and wide freedom. But I make the mistake of assuming that if nothing mattered, that would be a kind of freedom, or in the words of Tyler Durden, hitting bottom. To explain, let me talk briefly about uh, Kanye West. And of course, I realize that even saying a name like Kanye West evoked an immediate reaction for many of you, but hear me out for a second. I'm not particularly concerned with Mr. West as an entertainer or a celebrity culture type of person. Personally, I haven't followed his career other than like, you know, the average music fan sifting through the pop culture zeitgeist. But something about Kanye West fascinates me, and that is the fact that he is uh, punk rock, which is something I say all the time. But by punk rock, I always only mean running deliberately contrary to the status quo of one's culture and personal spheres of influence. That's not necessarily good or bad, per se. It could be either or both or, or neither one. In his controversial book, White, wildly divisive author Bretty Stanellis describes Kanye as, quote, his own man, no apologies, and that people simply need to acknowledge, not approve of or embrace, that here is someone who sees the world in his own way and not according to how other people think he should see it. And then Ellis claims that this life philosophy gives Kanye, quote, a power that allows him, no matter what others think, to be totally free. Now, again, this could be good or bad or neither, but my point is this. Something, I think, in the human soul is drawn to the idea of that freedom, the sweet 
elusive and largely unbelievable notion that we might somehow be unanxious and contented in the face of life in a chaotic world. But the notion seems so far-fetched that it is relegated to like eccentric celebrities like Kanye West or Jim Carrey, whatever the heck he's doing now, or to movie villains like Heath Ledger's Joker who makes away with like a mountain of money only to set it on fire. Why? Because everything burns. This kind of freedom or detachment from stuff fascinates us as human beings, but ultimately it seems unhealthy or it seems insane or it seems both, and maybe it is. But are Kanye West and the Joker the only kinds of people who can truly embrace a kind of freedom that's no longer afraid of what other people think or the inevitability of suffering? Or is that where Jesus is leading us? Not to madness, but to a place of love so content and so secure that anxiety and fear finally slip from our unworried fingers. Which finally brings us once again to John chapter 21. For the last few weeks, we've been in a series based around the idea that discipleship to Jesus is a journey. The authors of the New Testament compare it to the journey uh, from infancy to adulthood. Jesus called it a narrow road, or he called it a way. The idea is that following Jesus is not simply a static state of being. You go somewhere. You grow and mature. You start as one person, and then you change into someone else. You journey. You are en route to a destination, and the destination is love, to truly and freely love God with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. Throughout church history, writers and thinkers and priests and psychologists in the Jesus tradition have given language to this journey, and it's something called stage theory. The idea being that the better we understand where we are on the journey of discipleship, the more equipped we can be to mature and to thrive and to avoid painful backtracking or the apathetic plateau. Now, if you've missed something along the way the last few weeks, go back, catch up on the podcast. For the last few Sundays, we've been working with John 21. Tonight, we're going to take one last look at this haunting, beautiful story. Specifically, let's look at the last words that John records Jesus saying to his friend Peter. You guys ready? You all right? Great. Thank you. Okay. John 21, uh, beginning with verse 18. Jesus says to his friend Peter, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. We've been talking about the way this passage draws a striking distinction between the first stage of Peter's life over and against the second stage of it. When you were younger, dot, 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 but when you are old. And notice something interesting about Jesus' language here. As he describes the functionality of Peter's early years, the verbs are all active. When you were younger, you dressed yourself, you went. But in the second half, the verbs become passive. When you are old, someone else will dress you and lead you. Active than passive. And it seems perhaps a small detail, but Jesus, in the trademark brilliance of his words, is describing a phenomenon reorganized or, or a phenomenon recognized by maturing disciples of Jesus down throughout church history. And the idea is this, from the outset of discipleship, 
we walk the narrow road with great effort. We put a lot into it. It's not a bad thing. It's something we're supposed to do. Some traditions along the way are allergic to like words like effort for fear that they will somehow eclipse the grace of God. But the authors of the New Testament make it clear enough. Following Jesus is hard work. We must therefore, in the language of Paul and of Peter and of Hebrews, make every effort Through the empowering of God's Spirit, you are drawing from a power beyond yourself, yes, but to walk the ways of discipleship, to learn and to grow, to study, to practice the things of Jesus, trial and error, and to assemble this stumbling mess that is you into an ever-maturing student of the Master. It's tough. In other words, it's active. But talk to disciples of Jesus who have been at it for a long time, who are mature, who actively demonstrate the ways of love and humility and gentleness, who are peaceful and grateful and contented. The sensation a disciple gets, the further they walk and grow, is that their activity begins to, in a way at least, wane. Instead of an arena for our hard work, discipleship becomes a series of peaceful submissions to what God is doing in and through us. It becomes, in other words, more passive. And this passive submission often has to do with our willingness to follow Jesus into pain. For Peter, he would be led to where he did not want to go. In other words, to death. And you can translate this as the complete giving over of himself to God or to his actual physical martyrdom or to both things. For you and I, it's probably not martyrdom that we're being led to. I hope not. But it is a series of deaths In other words, places we do not want to go. Ancient writers in the spiritual formation tradition came to describe this phenomenon as active and passive spirituality. And the antiquated nature of the language is immediately apparent. For starters, passive in our context is usually or or almost always a bad thing. We hear passive and we think like passive-aggressive people. You know how they're, aren't they the best? We all know how fun those people are. That's me being passive-aggressive. Get it? Or... We think of someone being like non-confrontational or lazy or spineless or cowardly, passive. But when writers and thinkers through church history wrote about passive spirituality, they didn't have any of these negative things in mind. And really, that the language requires a bit of context and translation isn't surprising because the idea itself of passive spirituality has become almost entirely neglected in the Western world, in the modern Western world. This idea, like so many aspects of following Jesus, runs contrary to the grain of our culture. But this is, we think, an idea with massive implications for us as disciples of Jesus. So first, let's talk just a moment about the history of the whole active-passive spirituality paradigm. We're not sure who said it first. It shows up in the writings of someone called St. John of the Cross and his spiritual director, someone called Teresa of Avila in the 16th century. And this kind of thinking was born from a time in which psychology was not divorced from spirituality. When the enlightened Western world began to secularize, psychology entered the domain of science and then stayed there. And that's not a bad thing per se, but it's problematic in that science doesn't have much to say about spirituality. So in that sense, science does a bang-up job diagnosing or medicating pain. But it can't lead you into the deep work of the soul to resolve the conflicts of the soul. But there was a time, believe it or not, when what we call psychology worked in tandem with what the ancients called spirituality. And the writings of people like St. John of the Cross evidence this quite well. And we, Van City, care 
because we understand that following Jesus is done with your entire person. We don't just believe things in our heads and then behave accordingly with our bodies. We pour the entirety of our thinking and feeling and relationships and joy and pain and messiness into the journey of following Jesus with, ideally, emotional health and spiritual maturity. So sometimes people ask why at Van City we learn about and practice spiritual disciplines, and then we alternate to principles of emotional health. Well, that's exactly why. The journey of discipleship is about learning to pray, for example, and it's about dealing with the wounds of your past. It's about learning to fast, and it's about discovering your identity and calling. And all of these things we're drawing from an ancient, trustworthy tradition of wise men and women who have done extensive thinking and writing and practice in the realm of following Jesus with all that they are. The idea of active and passive spirituality comes from that tradition. So let's unpack it a a bit. Let's start with the active phase of spirituality. It's what it sounds like. It's the aspects of the discipleship journey in which, empowered by God's grace, you, of course, do stuff. And it feels like it. Self-effort propelled by the grace of God. Gerald May described it this way. The active dimension of the spiritual life consists of what feels like one's initiative, choice, or effort. So when you think active spirituality, we're talking about things like the practices, for example, what we also call spiritual disciplines, waking up early to spend time in prayer, reading the scriptures, showing up here on a Sunday evening, well done, um, your Van City community, a, a, a weekly day of Sabbath rest, communion, that kind of thing. But it's also the emotional health stuff that I mentioned earlier, going through therapy, dealing with your past, uncovering and dealing with the shadow side of your particular personality and wiring. It's the understanding and crucifying of your flesh, that part of you that's bent away from God and learning to address sin and your life. In short, it's basically the first few years of Van City up until now. There's a simplicity here because a lot of this stuff is quantifiable, and if you don't do it, it doesn't happen, and that's it. Much to the chagrin of many in the early stages of discipleship. If you don't wake up early and read the Bible, it doesn't happen. No one will, you know, like God won't carry you out of your bed, and then, you know, you, you understand it doesn't work like that. But when you do act, there's a, a kind of linear feel to things. You learn how to do something, and then you know how to do that thing. Sure, with, with uh, success and failure and all that, trial and error, it doesn't mean that you get perfect at it, but it just means that there are accomplishable goals. So it's relatively simple uh, to provide a framework for that kind of thing. A while back, I had coffee with a dude, a lovely fellow. uh, I believe he was about 20 years old. So me being, geez, 16 some odd years older than him, I could say, okay, you're here. Here's what I would do. Do these things. And they were all quantifiable. You learn how to do them, then you go do them, and now you've done them. Um, It's active, in other words. Of course, You're not all on your own. God is working in and through and with you all along. There's community around you, but you have a role to play in your formation. That's the idea. You have a responsibility. You have a stake in the person you're becoming. A lot of it is up to your action. But passive spirituality, on the other hand, isn't that way at all. Gerald May says it like this. The passive dimension seems to be more initiated and carried out by God. God is doing something And you are not the initiator, nor the primary actor. Instead, you welcome God, you allow Him to work, and you don't argue with Him or run from Him or thwart Him in His work. So this reads less like a laundry list of quantifiable goals. Instead, it's things like this. One, suffering. 
pain that interrupts your life beyond your control. It could be like a tragedy, a diagnosis. There's no way around it. But in it, God, if we allow Him, can mature us and bring us to new peace and security and wisdom. Now, to be clear, we don't believe that God engineers the suffering. We believe that He uses it. At Van City, we believe that suffering develops from things like our decisions or human evil or spiritual evil, the decisions of beings in the spiritual realm, the chaos of a broken world. It is not caused or ordained by God, but God is so incredibly intelligent and creative that He steps into that suffering with you and He uses it to do us good if we let Him. So passive spirituality could also be accepting the limitations that are on your life right now, that you are, sorry, likely not the incredibly special world changer you, would pro you were promised you would become, that though you were promised you'd become a millionaire or a movie god or a pop star or a beloved online personality, you won't. And that's fine. It could also simply be meeting the demands of a given stage of life, functioning in your marriage or in your singleness. It could be the beautiful and frustrating tedium of raising children. It could be faithfulness to your vocation. These are things for which we haven't really planned teaching series and practices because, again, we can't dictate them or seize them or achieve them in the quantifiable sense. Instead, God meets us in the beauty or the horror and the ordinariness of life, and He works. So passive spirituality is learning to let Him do that. That is the letting go, the unanxious, contented disposition of love and peace. And though the word passive spirituality doesn't show up in the Bible, the idea is certainly collected from the New Testament. One of the landmark texts is Matthew 6. It's part of Jesus' manifesto on what it means to be a disciple of His in the kingdom of God. You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen as I read it. In it, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Is that, if that is how your father clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For pagans... Run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. Therefore, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And listen to this. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, obviously, that's a well-known text. One verse in particular, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be given to you as well, is easily among the most misunderstood and abused in the entire Bible. 
Because the Bible is often so dang quotable without context. If you just get rid of the context, it's great. It like makes wall art. It looks wonderful. Context ruins everything. A while back, uh, some I don't know why, some enterprising, uh, I think it was a Pinterest user, began making inspirational images with Taylor Swift quotes. Here's one, for example. It isn't history that makes heroes. It is the heroes that make history. Here's another one. Um, do not compare yourself to others. If you do so, you are insulting yourself. The only thing was, these quotes are actually from Adolf Hitler and not from Taylor Swift. The idea <laughs> is that <laughs> divorced of its context, you can make isolated quotations mean all kinds of things. You can even make them sound quite lovely. And people treat the Bible this way. It's, it's a mind-boggling thing. That line about seek first the kingdom, all these things will be given to you as well. For example, has been used, uh, at least in my experience, more often not to say, be a good Christian and good stuff will happen to you. You'll get everything you need. Just be a good Christian, which is hilarious because in, in the context of this teaching, Jesus is one, warning against the dangers of accumulating wealth and worrying about money. And two, he ends the whole teaching by saying, look, don't worry about tomorrow. Believe me, it will worry about itself. And then he has this quote, each day has enough trouble of its own, meaning suffering is coming for you. It is inevitable, so why waste your time worrying about it? Accept it. That's freedom. Um, this weekend, or gearing up to the weekend, rather, uh, whenever I have, like, I'm uh, really into movies, so I, whenever I have, like, one on the calendar that I've really been looking forward to, in some cases, for years, this one that I'm about to talk about for uh, six years, yeah. So it's a sequel to the Americanized 2014 Godzilla, 2014. Now we have, what is it, 2019? Yeah, five years. Five, is that, did I do the math on that? I said six the first time. Five daggum years. I was quite excited about it. I was a big Godzilla fan. And uh, the day of, I started to get so much anxiety. I was like, what if people are talking in the movie theater? And I was like, and Abby's like, you got to get a grip. I was like, what if, and she's like, just do your thing. Because I have a strategy. Like if they're talking near me, you give them the half turn. And then you give them the full turn. And then you say, can you please be quiet? But now you're out of the movie and everyone's looking at you. So sometimes I just get up and move to a different spot. And that's really challenging because what if the spot's not good and I, you know, I got this good. So I was like, oh God, what if people are going to be talking in this movie? I started sitting, I'm dead serious. I started sending a text to our community thread. I was like, will you guys pray that there's no knuckleheads in the theater tonight? And they're like, oh, shut up. And I was like, I'm serious, man. I really, I want to enjoy this. Whew. I was so worried. Anyway, I have no control over that. It does not change anything. Prayer, I think, I hope, <laughs> does. But the idea is that, back to Jesus. Jesus is like, man, Look at these flowers. They aren't worried about what's going to happen to them because what's the point? They are going to be thrown into the fire tomorrow. And then he's inviting us to following in their example. Look, they're all going to be thrown into the fire, so don't worry. They're not worried. It's kind of horrifying if you think about it. And he's inviting us into that. Look, it gets bad. It will get bad. Jesus says that over and over again. If you read his teaching, in this world, you will have trouble. But worrying won't fix it. But no one likes to quote the flowers line or the fire line or the line about each day having enough trouble of its own. We like the idea of be a good Christian, stuff works out. I do my part, you do your part. We don't like the idea of embrace the kingdom of God with all that you are and you can be set free from worry no matter what can and will happen to you. Because that, frankly, sounds hard. But that is what it means to be free. Robert Mulholland defines that freedom, passive spirituality, this way. A deep inner posture 
of joyful release of our life and being to God in absolute trust, without demands, without conditions, without reservations. It is neither a passive resignation nor a fatalistic acquiescence to whatever comes. It is rather a consistent posture of actively turning our whole being to God so that God's presence, purpose, and power can be released through our lives into all situations. And here's why this is something we need to think about. Active spirituality will only take you so far in the journey of discipleship. Meaning if you come to church fairly often, listen to some podcasts, you'll certainly cover some ground on the spiritual journey, but then you slow to a lull. Many of you know this from experience. I know I do. If you, but then if you start to live in community, if you wake up early to read the scriptures, if you start learning how to pray or start going to therapy or practice generosity, that kind of thing, then you move past the first lull and you start to cover more ground. And many of you know well enough that seasons of growth often seem to conclude in a day crescendo. The pace slows and suddenly you stop. And that could be for any number of reasons, some undealt with thing in your life, a wall of pain in your life, an unchecked immaturity, a sin that you haven't dealt with. It could just be that to move forward requires us to follow Jesus into a dark place, and we're too scared to do it. And for that, for the letting go, we have to embrace a passive spirituality. It's too dark to see. So the shepherd has to lead us by the hand into the dark, and there's no way around it. You can't simply do that with Bible reading and church gatherings alone. You have to take a painful look at the things in your own life, the things that you're afraid to put down, the stuff that you believe you need to be happy. In other words, uh, trust structures or idols. It could be superficial, things like money and possessions and your reputation, or it could be things that make a lot more sense, like the safety of your family, the, the realization of your dreams, the stuff that deep down you don't believe you can live without. And we all have them. A friend of mine uh, is single and doesn't want to be, wants to be in a relationship, wants to get married, wants to start a family. And a while back, I asked them, non-confrontationally, we were talking about this, just out of curiosity, what they would do if God asked them to stay single. And my friend said, I am not ready to consider that. This was an honest answer. And you don't have to be a spiritual sage to see that if we could somehow loosen our grip on these things, even the good things, that we, the things that we think we can't live without, if we could somehow loosen that grip, we could be more free. And it doesn't mean that you don't care about good things, that you no longer want good things. It means accepting that even though each day has enough trouble of its own, you will walk with Jesus and He will be enough. Because when we don't believe this, not really anyway, we crowd our lives with all sorts of distractions because Jesus isn't enough. Again, this from Gerald May. Regardless of how a compulsion appears externally, underneath it is always robbing us of our freedom. We act not because we have chosen to, but because we have to. We cling to things and people and beliefs and behaviors, not because we love them, but because we're terrified of losing them. 
In a spiritual sense, the objects of our attachments and addictions become idols. We give them our time, energy, and attention, whether we want to or not, even and often especially when we are struggling to rid ourselves of them. We want to be free, compassionate, and happy, but in the face of our attachments, we are clinging, grasping, and fearfully self-absorbed. This is the root of our trouble. So, consider for a moment the way your desire for or fear of what isn't enslaves you to unhappiness. And this is not Buddhism where the idea is to get rid of desire, to divorce yourself from attachments. The way of Jesus is about ordering your desires correctly. So this is about our slavery to attachment versus the freedom to love. So if, for example, in marriage... Many people carry with them an idealized expectation of what their spouse should be. And I'm not talking about turning a blind eye to like unhealthiness or sinful behavior or something like that. I'm talking about when a person's fantasy of another person becomes a chain around the actual person's neck. And when that spouse disappoints them, they criticize and insult or they complain or they make suggestions or they nudge in the direction of their ideal. And when that spouse simply cannot be this fantasy, in their disappointment, the other person wounds them. And as long as they are enslaved to the fantasy, attached to it, they are not free to love their spouse as they are. Or look at the way so many parents uh, parade their children on social media like little columns to lift their fragile ego. I dress my kid so cool, so I am cool. And my kid likes cool things and is also smart in these perfect photographs of our perfect vacations. And our love is so profound as is evidenced by this perfect balance of my flowery writing and slightly self-effacing humor so as to affect a veneer of humility. But it's all a crock. You realize it's all a crock. Kids ain't cool. Have you been around kids? They are not cool. Have you seen them? They're dorks. They don't know what the heck cool is. <laughs> and they're filthy half the time. It's gross. And they, they can be brilliant in one moment and really impress you. And then they walk into a wall the next moment in their own dang house. They know where stuff is. And this is not hyperbole. Someone was complimenting just the other day. I was in the grocery store, me and my daughter, and uh, she's about to be three. And she was doing something that looked really smart. I'm, it was smart. And in that moment, this lady walked by, and uh, she, she's complimented. She's like, oh, my gosh, isn't she smart? you got such a smart helper with you. And I was like, ah, it depends, because <laughs> earlier this afternoon, she walked into a wall. I watched it. <laughs> All these amazing Instagram children are really petty and selfish and stinky. I see them. I have them. They're, they're, they're not as amazing. I mean, I love them. It's, you get what I'm saying. But if, if I need my kids to be ornamental for my sake, to be the smart kids, to be the talented kids, the most social, the best behaved kids, then I am not free to love them for who they are, dorks or stinky or whatever. I would love for my kids to do all those things, to have amazing grades. I'd love for them to like the things that I like so that we can share them. I want them to be artists and get into, you know, theology with me. I, I have simple dreams, you know, about like showing my kid Jurassic Park for the first time. I've been planning it since he was in utero. One of my greatest dreams is a little more admirable than that. I've long dreamed of and prayed that I could be the one to baptize my kids. But what if they don't get amazing grades? What if they're not artists, they don't care about art? What if they're not interested in theology or they like the wrong theological concepts or they want some other jerk to baptize them or something like that? Can I somehow operate in the secure 
unanxious freedom to simply adore them for who they actually are rather than who I'd prefer them to be. And if I don't, I will damage them profoundly. And you can see this is about so much more than marriage or children. If you believe your career will fulfill you and you study and you train and you get out there and maybe your dreams don't immediately come true. It's not as good as you thought it would be. And maybe you'll bail and go back to school and start over and chase a new fantasy. Or it could be just some idealized version of your life or your career that you'll get famous, that you'll be admired, that you'll have the body that you want or find the romance that you want, the way that you want. Before we started Van City, I, when I was first beginning therapy, no correlation, um, I think I spent most of that entire first year telling my therapist things like, it could be bad this way. Things could be bad this way. To which he would always respond, yes, that would be bad. And that could happen. And then what? And it took dozens of hours of these conversations. I'm like, this guy's weird. Uh, for something in me to shift and something took hold, and he finally told me one morning when it started to click, he was like, Josh, what I want you to learn is acceptance without despair. Yes, things can go bad. In some scenarios, they likely will go bad. And then what? Acceptance without despair. For us to arrive in the glory and the wreckage of our lives with acceptance, able to say without despair, this is my life. And listen, this is not about becoming inert, un unwilling to do hard work or deal with sin or improve. It's actually the opposite. This is about accepting that which is beyond our control, to let that, that which does not matter truly slide, about confronting the beauty and the horrors of life with peaceful, secure, unanxious acceptance. As Teresa of Avila wrote in a beautiful poem, all things pass, but God is unchanging. You who have God lack nothing. God alone is sufficient. So active spirituality is a good and necessary aspect of the discipleship journey. You have a role to play. You have work to do. You have effort to make. But somewhere along the way, you must embrace passive spirituality to continue along the narrow road. Jean-Pierre de Cossade, a French Jesuit in the 17th century, wrote about the inevitable need for both an active and a passive spirituality, saying this. I love how simple he assumes it must be. Would to God that all men could know how very easy it would be for them to arrive at a high degree of sanctity. They would only have to fulfill the simple duties of Christianity and of their stage of life to embrace with submission the crosses belonging to that state and to submit with faith and love to the designs of providence. The passive part of sanctity is still more easy since it only consists in accepting that, that which we very often have no power to prevent and in suffering lovingly, that is to say, with sweetness and consolation, those things that too often cause weariness and disgust. Once more, I repeat, in this consists sanctity. For most of us, the first half of our lives, give or take, will be largely active, and the second halves more passive. Hence Jesus' haunting words to Peter, when you were young, you dressed yourself, you went where you wanted to go, but when you are older, someone else will dress you and lead you. 
Now, to be sure, all of discipleship includes certain levels of both active and passive participation. The older disciples of Jesus that I know, the more mature, submitted, relaxed, unanxious people, they still wake up early and read their Bibles. They still pray all the time. They still learn. They still live in community. I have taught in rooms and looked out to see men and women much older and wiser and more mature with notebooks open, taking notes on my sermons. So embarrassing. I'm like, you can go ahead and close that. I don't have anything for you. And at first, that's how I felt. I was like, oh God, what's going on? But then I realized This, too, is an indication of their wisdom and their maturity. Not that they're smart enough to take notes on my teaching, but they are yet eager to learn and realize that God speaks through all kinds of people. So like beginners, they still wake up early, they still read, they still pray, they still take notes. One never matures beyond these active components of discipleship. That is always a part of the journey. But the longer we walk the road, the more we may realize that with a firm foundation beneath us, much of the road is being led by God with peaceful acceptance. And again, please hear me when I say this. None of this is about becoming idle or rolling over and playing dead or giving up. Discipleship to Jesus and laziness are incompatible, meaning you cannot do both. The call over our lives is to pour all that we have into loving God and to loving other people. And that means doing stuff. There is no way around it. Being led by God is not giving up, lying down or letting life run over you with like a train. In fact, in accepting that which we cannot control, there is so much work to be done. Acceptance is not obliviousness. But the thing is, the Western world has mostly taught us to chase a dangling carrot of comfort and security and to, in all things, mitigate or avoid suffering. So all of us tend to look for ways to maximize comfort and happiness and to minimize pain. And it could be through doing all kinds of stuff or through avoiding all kinds of stuff. So we do stuff and buy stuff and medicate and distract or avoid conversations, avoid people, avoid places. We work to manipulate situations or people or ourselves in order to outrace pain until you become like a doomed person struggling against quicksand. So what happens, what happens when, when the closet to which we have sequestered our pain comes bursting forth? And if it hasn't happened yet, it will. So acceptance isn't about throwing up your hands and giving up and checking out, oh, well, whatever. It's about the empowerment of God over your life to confront that which you cannot control without being undone by it. The Serenity Prayer that was popularized by Alcoholics Anonymous was written by a theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, in the 1930s. And in its original form, the prayer went like this. It's beautiful. God, give us grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. The writers of the New Testament understood that the journey of following Jesus, we operate in this ongoing tension between active and acceptive passivity. 
The Apostle Paul famously wrote, for example, for it is by grace that you are saved through faith, not by works. Heck yes, true. But James wrote that faith without works is dead. Heck yes, also true. In Philippians 2, Paul writes, listen to this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. What? So you work so that God can work one than the other. Yes, active and passive. To end tonight, let me offer a kind of template for realizing this concept in our lives. Really simple exercise. It's uh, three steps. You make space, you move toward the pain, and you accept the invitation of Jesus. So it starts with making space. It's what it sounds like. You clear away time, meet with God, get up early, show up for church, curate rhythms. My watch, for example, beeps at 1 p.m. every day, and I stop what I'm doing, and I pray. It could be just a line or two. It could be like a walk around the block, or it could be stop and meditate for a long time in the presence of God. You just The idea is that you're finding new and regular ways to redirect your mind, your attention, your heart toward God in the rhythm of your life. And then while you're there, from time to time, move toward your pain rather than away from it. Ask yourself before God, where does it hurt? We all have pain. My personality is such that I can talk about it all day. Uh, I can think about it, write about it, whatever, to a fault, obviously. Maybe you're like me and you're up for it. That sounds like, oh, I'll do that. I'm willing to do that. For others, it's a real challenge. Some of us will do anything to avoid moving toward pain, and some of us will do anything to avoid moving on from pain, frankly. But isn't it interesting that when you read through the stories of Jesus' life, they are replete with people coming to him more often than not in their pain. A shame and ostracized woman with a menstrual disorder drawn to Jesus in the place of great pain. A crook driven away from his own people by his sin, driven to Jesus by his pain. People demonized or paralyzed or blind who come to Jesus. And Jesus meets people in their pain. And when people demonstrate a willingness to meet Jesus in their pain, he heals them. And then he invites them to follow. Now, many of us would prefer to skip to the healing <laughs> without having to crawl before Jesus, broken and bleeding with tears in our eyes, in the place of pain. But the frustrating truth is that we have to go backward before we can go forward. We have to go into our pain in order to meet Jesus there. And once we have gone back, then we have to go forward. We get healed. We can't wallow or linger in the pain forever. So when we make space and we meet Jesus in our pain, we accept his invitation in the stage and season of our discipleship. In his book, Sacred Fire, Ronald Rollheiser writes this, we mature by meeting life just as God and nature designed it and accepting the invitations that beckon us ever deeper into the heart of life itself. But that is a simple cliche, more easily said than done, because as we go through the seasons of our lives, the challenges we meet there can just as easily embitter and harden the soul as mellow it. We all know a person or many people who are discernibly embittered by life, cantankerous and cynical and unhappy. So to avoid the entangling cynicism of life, we have to stand before Jesus prepared to say yes when he says, now follow me here. For you right now where you sit, that invitation could be to do something, you know, spiritual disciplines or community or the scriptures or prayer, active spirituality. Or it could be to accept something, to accept your life and what's in it, the good and the bad, the things that you can't change. 
passive spirituality. Or maybe for you, it's some of both. There's a simple exercise up at practiceintheway.org for you and your community in the coming week. It's about asking yourself a couple of simple questions about what active and passive spirituality look like in your particular stage of apprenticeship. Why are we fascinated by the idea of someone truly free from what other people think of them or from concern with money or image or prestige? When I was 18, I lived in a single-wide trailer in the rural south with five or six other dudes, (laughs) two bedrooms. One night, some of us woke to the sound of a car revving in the driveway, and it was like, you know, three in the morning or something. We stumbled to the window to see one of our cars being driven off by presumably a thief. And in a panic, we shook our friend, the owner of said car. We shook him awake and said, dude, someone's stealing your car right now as we speak. And he sat up groggy just in time to see the recognizable taillights of his car as it left our driveway and disappeared down the dark road. And I remember he took a deep breath. He pursed his lips and he said, that's life. And he settled back down into his bed and went to sleep. And we told this story for years. I'm still telling it nearly two decades later because it's funny, one, but also because we were in that moment filled with a jealous admiration. (laughs) And I'm not saying that his reaction should be how we would react in a similar situation per se, but what it seemed to imply to us is that this friend of ours could literally stare into a moment that would be reasonably upsetting and meet it with peace. I realize that me personally, I will never become an emotionless monk. I feel things very deeply. Ask Abby, ask my close friends. But I want to become the kind of person that when suffering or tragedy or surprise, things I can't control, when it comes and when the load of it bows my back and I double over weeping, I will not be undone by it. That when Jesus holds me in my pain and I tell him, this is very bad, And he agrees, saying, yes, it is, that I will continue to walk beside him. And if he leads me to a dark wood through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't scream and panic and scramble to free myself from his hand, but that I can take a deep breath and accept the journey for what it is and follow Jesus. So let's pray and invite God's Spirit to empower us to do just that. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.